Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network, where conversations are held with people throughout the world of sports. Today's is unique someone who has a lot of experience in the world of college basketball he is now espn's national recruiting director i'm looking forward to this conversation to learning a little bit more about how national recruiting services come up with their lists how they evaluate guys how he evaluates as a director of recruiting as opposed to a college coach where you might be recruiting or evaluating for need Paul Biancardi. Coach, I think it's fair to still call you coach, if I'm not mistaken. How is life these days for you? Well, I still think I'm a coach, Dan, so I'll take that title any day. Uh, Things are good. Things are solid. Haven't been out as much because of COVID in terms of um, at events and evaluating players live, but probably have watched as much film in the last six months as I have in the last six years because a lot of people have turned their events uh, to live stream, so it's an opportunity to watch kids all over the country uh, in front of a computer. You know, you mentioned watching kids for your evaluations for, for the list that you make for ESPN. How difficult is it to make lists based or evaluations based off of film? Because you might not be able to to see the spacing or the IQ of a kid or the understanding of, hey, action's happening here. I need to get to this side of the floor that opens up. That's difficult to see on film, if I'm not mistaken. How do you kind of balance that as well as talking to coaches right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And beside the spacing, as you mentioned, and the ability to really read the IQ, the other thing you don't get off of film is athletic ability size, the measurables. If somebody's 6'6", they may not look 6'6 on the film. If somebody is really athletic, it's hard to tell how athletic they are. You do college games for us at ESPN. You know when the opposing coach says, hey, they're really long, they're really athletic, and then you do a Florida State game and you see them in person, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like an NBA team. So I would say that athleticism and the physical measurables are really hard to evaluate. And uh, you mentioned it, the IQ. But film does a lot of good. It's always been a supporting tool uh, for me for evaluating whether I was coaching or doing uh, the recruiting for ESPN. It's a great supporting tool. 
and it's now turned into a tool that has to be the primary uh, recruiting tool, uh, evaluating tool, until we can get to events uh, on a more consistent basis uh, live. But I do like watching film a lot because you can see how a player uh, interacts with his teammates a little bit on the court. Depends upon the, the value of the film. If it's a bad quality film, I'm not going to see much at all. Some of these companies have really got sophisticated and, and they show you some clear film. They even throw on an announcer so you can know who's who. Uh, but usually I know who I'm looking at. And um, it, it's a good tool. I like it. But I think it's time to get back into the gym to see that, you know, the, the coachability, the body language, things that I want to see before and after a play. And I want to see how the, the player interacts with his coach, his teammates, when he sits on the bench. You know, is he at the end of the bench? Is he near the coaches? Is he talking to his teammates? I'm looking for all the traits under the surface, and it's really hard to see on film. I can see a guy make shots. I can see a guy make the open pass. I can see a guy rebound, and I need to see that. But if you want to look deeper, you have to go live. I like the, the characteristics and the attributes that you talked about looking at, looking a coach in the eye, being connected with your teammates on the bench as opposed to sitting uh, at the end, maybe with a towel over their head. And you, you called video a supporting tool. And I completely agree with that because anytime that I've had a chance to watch a shoot around, I've gotten more out of that for prep as opposed to watching a game on TV two nights before for one of my broadcasts. But when you talk about video as a supporting tool right now, there, there's two different factions going on that I've seen with these high school tapes. You see the high school highlight and mixtapes versus full games. Is there value in both for, for someone like yourself who wants to see the athleticism, the ball handling, the shooting form, the footwork? Can you get it out of both, or what do you prefer? Oh, I strictly prefer whole game tape. I want to see it from the jump ball all the way to the final buzzer. There's a lot of things is to look for. You know, if a guy's team is down 20 points with two minutes to go and he's still in the game, I want to see how he responds to those last two minutes. That's going to tell me something about his character. Is he going to go off uh, in terms of just playing for himself? Is he trying to get his team back in the game? That's different. Is, did he quit? Did he stop giving effort on the court? Uh, highlight tapes are, are great for families. They're great for uh, memories. And um, I really don't look at highlight tapes. I, I will not look at highlight tapes uh, unless somebody I know and trust sends me a clip or two or three or five minutes of somebody. But I got to tell you what. Now, if you sent me clips from somebody up in your state and you said, I, I think he's a Division One prospect or I think he's a top 100 type player, I would look at it because it's you and your credibility in the game as a player. I know you coached player development with the Blazers and all your basketball background. That I can do because I trust, your, I trust your opinion. You've been there. You've done it. You've played against the best. But random highlight tapes mean nothing. Everybody looks better when they make a shot in a highlight tape. You never miss shots in highlight tapes. You never make turnovers in highlight tapes. You never have bad body language in highlight tapes. And tell me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you watch a lot of film too, I never get a highlight tape of defense unless it's a guy blocking a shot. I never – I would love if somebody sent me a highlight tape of a guy taking charges 
I would love a highlight tape of a guy getting over a ball screen and staying in front of the ball. So in my world, they're, they're really meaningless, uh, full game tapes. But if you want memories down the road and show your kids, make highlight tapes. That's, that's such a great description of both of those. You know, to, to be honest and to be fair, there is one highlight group that I know here in the Northwest that does focus on some of the other things, the footwork and the defensive effort. But you're right. I, I would agree with you. If I want to get the true sense of a player or a team, if I'm getting ready to cover a team, I want to watch the full, uh, the, the full game, not just bits and pieces of what worked well. Because you're right, you got to figure out what didn't go well and then how they did they react to it. As you're building out your recruiting lists and your, your evaluations for ESPN, I'm sure you get – maybe bombarded is not the right word, but you get pushed by a number of AAU teams, directors, to look at their guy or to rank their guys as a, as a, at a certain position. How hard is it to – basically say, you know what, this is my unfiltered view of what I've seen. And granted, you've seen a lot, but you quite frankly can't see everybody across the country because you can't be at every event, but you cover it as well as anybody in the country. How hard is it to not listen to all the outside influences of people that want their guys ranked? Yeah. Yeah. They don't push me. They shove me. (laughs) And, uh, and I understand why they do. It's they're fighting for their player. They're fighting for their player's parents. Uh, they're fighting for their program. And, and they should, just like a good coach during the game gets on the official uh, to support his team. I guess th- to answer your question is the, the hardest part of my job is what you said, seeing everybody. Now, I do see everybody, whether it's in person or live. I, I mean, I do see everybody that is ranked I've seen in person. And I've seen them on film, for sure. But you can't see every player in the country play at one time. So, for example, if I'm at an event on the East Coast and there's a West Coast event going on at the same time, all these great players out in the West Coast, some are playing well, some are not. I'm at the East Coast event. And even at the East Coast event, there's eight courts going on at once. I can only go to one game at a time to evaluate. I I watch one game, Dan, and I lock in on that one game with those prospects so I can know as much as I can about those guys. That's the hardest part of the job. You know, how people approach me, um, I understand it. I deal with it well. I did it as a coach for 20 years as an assistant, you know, at Ohio State and Boston College, St. Louis. People saying, look at my player. You should give him a scholarship people telling me why I should recruit that guy. So I understand it. I listen really well, but I do have a very uh, good filter. And I use my criteria when I make the list of who's going to be in the 100. And unfortunately, number 101, 102, 105, those guys are great players. You and I know that. Let me give you a a scope of this. Every year there's about 1,000 Division I players from high school. We have 351 teams, I believe, now that are Division I. On average, they offer three scholarships. So you're looking at about 1,000, 1,100 Division I kids that sign every year. So out of that group, I'm trying to make a list of just 100. And that's really hard to do. But 
you know, that, that's the, the funnel I have to get it down to. Uh, I feel good about it. It's never perfect, but I do believe the evaluations are accurate. Uh, and I use a criteria of performances in the high school game, their college potential, uh, their productivity, and then where I project them to be in the NBA draft, if they're going to be NBA draft players. Not all of them in the 100 will project out to be draft players, but if somebody's going to be number one in the country, you bet that they're going to be projected as a lottery uh, pick in the draft. So it's kind of like the 4P method, I call it. And then and under that, when I watch a player, I have criteria of all the things I'm looking for. I enjoyed listening to, to that description because I've seen your broadcast before when you've, you've had a high school game on ESPN during the course of the season. And you do a really nice job of saying, hey, you know what, this kid has a chance to – he's committed to this school or these three, four schools are recruiting him hard. He's got a chance to be really good because of this. And if he becomes really good here, maybe he can move on to the next level. So you look at that currently from – a recruiting list evaluation standpoint. But before you got into that, you were a college coach. And so you had to look for a specific need for your program based upon what you and the head coach of the program or when you were the head coach at Wright State, you felt you needed. What's the difference for you when you look at kids in your role now versus when you were looking at kids uh, when you were coaching and evaluating in that instance? Well, first of all, when I was coaching, I was looking at a lot less numbers, right? You, you only, if you have two scholarships to fill, you may look at, you know, 30, 40, 50 kids, and you may have a list or a board of, you know, eight to 10 to offer those two spots. And you're always looking as a coach to the underclassmen, which, which I do now at ESPN. I don't just look at the senior class. I have a junior class to rank and a sophomore class to rank. Uh, I have a lot more time with ESPN to do my job. When you're coaching, you have to sign guys that, A, that you need, and B, that fit. And I think as a coach, well, hopefully coaches do a, a really thorough job at the character evaluation. See, to me, that's so important because the person can stop the player from being great. If somebody has too many red flags or too many um, situations that won't allow that person to fit in your program – you got to know how to say no and pass on that person. Uh, so you're, you're recruiting for a specific team. Uh, you're recruiting less players. You're doing way more uh, under the surface evaluating of the person. And you, you build real relationships, or at least I did, with the players' parents and their coaches. I build great relationships, or I try to, at ESPN. But if you're looking at, you know, 1,000 players every year, it's hard to build relationships with all those people. Uh, and just the senior class. So I don't have as much time to develop relationships with people as I did as a coach. So I think that's the major difference. And you're really locked in and zeroed in on what you need as a coach. Right now, I'm locked in on what everybody needs and all the players that I can see. Before we jump and talk about your, your coaching path and, and some of your mentors, I, want, I got one last question in regards to the current high school basketball scene. You broadcast a number of games yearly now for ESPN where they, they are kind of focusing on some, some different up-and-coming players at the high school level. Who has been the best player that you have seen 
in your time as an analyst for those games and who's the best player in high school basketball currently? Cause I'm, I'm from the Northwest, as you know, Paulo Banchero from the Seattle area, O'Day high school committed to Duke tremendous talent. I've seen him in person a couple times. Uh, I think he's very good. I'm sure you've seen him a number of times, but for people in the Northwest that also are listening to this podcast, stack him up against maybe who you see as the best player now. Well, first of all, the best player that I've seen in this job at ESPN is Anthony Davis. And that didn't happen until his senior year. I mean, he just grew. Uh, I think he grew six to eight inches from sophomore year to senior year. He went from a, an extreme elite shot blocker to a guy who could run the floor. And he always had great touch. We're seeing his touch now in, in the NBA playoffs making threes. He, how about that left corner three he made to win the game yeah. uh, the Lakers? But he always could shoot the ball facing up. Great skill, mobility, wonderful kid, worked hard. He was just always painfully thin. And, and now he's finally, I mean, he looks like a, he is a grown man now. But watching him in high school, I thought he was uh, just really special all the way around. Before that, as a coach, I saw LeBron when I was at Ohio State. So he was the best prospect that I've ever seen that I laid eyes on in high school. Um, and there were other great players, but he was, he was certainly special. And now the best prospect in the senior class is Chet Holmgren. He's 7-1 out of Minnesota, but he's got all the skills of a small forward. And, and I kid you not, he can put the ball on the deck at 7-1. He shoots it very comfortably and easily facing up. He's an elite shot blocker, and he's just – it's like watching a guy on stilts play basketball because he's so long and he's so skilled. So he's number one, and, and your man Paulo is, is number three in the country. And I absolutely love his game, and I know you do because he's got a little bit of old school in his game, right? He can, he's fundamentally sound. I think he's got terrific footwork. He can beat you with his back to the basket or facing. I love the way he passes the ball. He's so consistent. In my mind, he, he's probably the most productive player in the class. I love that uh, in-depth analysis because I agree with all those things that you said about Banchero. And, and Holmgren, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gonzaga Bulldog, so I follow a little bit of who they're recruiting. I know that, you know, they are recruiting Holmgren. I, it looks like there's a solid chance that he decides to go because Jalen Suggs, who's a freshman, was high school teammates. And I agree from the, the – I'm sorry, I saw highlights. I didn't see the full game. I know we had already talked about that. But the highlights I saw, I really liked in Holmgren. <laughs> I'll tell you this. He's 7'1". He's still about 200-plus pounds. He's really thin. But you'll love his skill. His shot-blocking ability changes the game. He close to a tri he's close to a triple-double in the high school game. Uh, when he played with Jalen last year, they played – up at the Target Center. We did the game on ESPN. In fact, Jalen committed. I think you had a college game that night. Yeah, we were texting uh, that night, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, Holmgren had, had a triple-double. I mean, he, and he'll rebound the ball. He does it so with length, you know, more than his strength. But uh, he's really different. He's really unique. Guys talk about unicorns all the time. I think Chet Holmgren is a unicorn. And you'll like this. He loves to work out. He likes to practice. I've watched him practice. I've watched him stay after practice. He's not afraid of work. That's the 
that's the differentiating factor for so many players, regardless of level. If they're going to move on and have success, you've got to right. have that work ethic to, and that inner drive to do it on your own. We talked about off-air before we started recruiting, you know, Division three and Division one type players. You played at the Division three level for one of the best basketball coaches over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, Tom Thibodeau, tell us about – your experience playing under Tibbs before he made it to the NBA and is now, you know, a big time head coach. And is he the influencing factor to get you into coaching when you were done playing? Well, I tell you what, this is a really good story for guys that want to play college ball, any level. You and I talked about the division two and three guys that are such good players out there. In fact, look at Duncan Robinson went to division three. Now he's went to Michigan and now he's, he's making, a lot of money and a lot of open threes in the finals as he approaches the finals. So I'm an average high school player and I really want to play college basketball because I watched it on TV like we all did. And I watched the NBA game. Grew up five minutes from the Celtics, uh, the old Boston Garden. But nobody recruited me and nobody should have. So I go to walk on at Salem State. Now Tom is a senior at Salem State when I go to walk on as a freshman. And I got cut as a freshman walk-on. Now, you and I both know that life doesn't get any lower than that, right? You're, you get invited to the, you invite yourself to the party and they don't let you in, basically. And so I was devastated, but my, my drive and determination and my passion for the game made me come back. So in year two, I break my ankle coming down on a rebound on someone's foot. And this is all just to be a walk-on. So I worked out all year, Rehab, training, you know, sacrificed everything I had just to make this team. And in year three, I made the team. Tom Thibodeau was the assistant coach then. And I think he had an influence of me being on the team because obviously I made it as a walk-on because I brought the traits, right, the intangibles. A guy who's going to practice hard all the time, be a good teammate, very coachable, and bring that intensity to practice that all coaches want. So – by the time I finished my senior year, which was my fifth year, I got the year back for uh, the ankle that I broke. Tom's now the head coach, and he elects me captain. And I go from a cut walk-on to a senior captain. Now, granted, I'm not starting. I'm not the sixth man. I'm not the seventh man. I'm maybe the eighth man. Um, you know, got some meaningful minutes as a senior, not much. But to me, that – that really meant a lot to make that team. So I can look at you and you're a great college player, but I can tell every kid today that if you want it badly, you, you can play college ball. Cause I did. And I had no talent. What Tibbs did to me as a, as a coach, he took my passion and raised it. He elevated it. You see him today on the sidelines, you see him barking instructions. That's the way he was back in the late eighties. The scouting reports, Dan, were so detailed. I felt like I knew the opponent as well as I knew my own teammate. Um, he was into it heavy. He would eat, sleep, and drink the game. He does so today. And, you know, he made us all better players. And he also elevated, I thought, our passion for the game. He put great demand on us. And he got us, as we say today, out of our comfort zone. We were never comfortable. Never comfortable. Even after a win, because – you know, you knew, you knew Coach Tibbs was coming in with something else after that. 
Um, but we weren't afraid of them. You know, a lot of coaches, you know, people are afraid of them. We're never afraid of Tibbs. We just knew that he was demanding, and if we wanted it, uh, he was going to show us the way. And so I'm really grateful for his coaching back then and his ability to help me become a better player. Although, you know, he's, he's quoted as this great guru of player development. I never made the NBA, so I don't know what kind of player development coach he really is. Uh, but what he's done in the NBA as an assistant and now a three-time head coach, you look at his record as an assistant and a head coach, uh, it's phenomenal. And, and I just talked to him a, a couple of months ago, and, you know, he's driven like nobody else. Well, it sounds like he had a tremendous influence on you, and you mentioned comfort zone. I think that in any industry that you work in, whether you're a coach or broadcaster, player, or just a businessman, you have to get out of your comfort zone to reach – your maximum potential. Uh, I look at your college coaching career and your path. You were an assistant at some really good schools, Boston College, Ohio State. I feel, and I've heard from a number of coaches that, you know, most of them want to be a head coach, but it's taking that jump, getting out of their comfort zone is many times the hardest thing. When you went from being an assistant coach at a great program like Ohio State to now Wright State, what was that decision factor for you, and what made you feel like, I'm ready to go for it? Well, first of all, a lot of coaches think because they have success as an assistant, they're ready to be a head coach, and they're not. Uh, Just because you have success at a program doesn't mean you're ready to be a head coach. It just means that you've been a, a successful program. To me the best head coaching hires um, when you're looking at assistants, I look at guys who've won and lost because I want to know somebody who can deal with losing and respond to losing. Uh, And I want someone who obviously has won. So I I like to see guys that have been through losing seasons and come back and through winning seasons, you know, up and down maybe, and then bounce back again as a program because when you go from a, Ohio State assistant, when you're coming off a Final Four and a Big Ten championship, you have all these resources, and you go to Wright State in the Horizon League, the resources are cut in half, right? Uh, the player that you recruit is not as talented. So you have to be able to adjust and adapt as a head coach, and you can't lose your mind because you lost a couple of games and you came off of a Big Ten championship. It's not going to be the same. So the, the, the more experience you can get, as an assistant coach in my mind, that prepares you to be a head coach. I like to see guys that have been through the losing and experienced winning because I think that makes them a more well-rounded coach and be able to – you got to handle winning. You know that. You win at a high level, you think you're going to keep winning at a high level. Biggest mistake you make. And when you lose, you can't go off on people. You can't go off on your players. Guilty as charged a few times. You can't go off on – your administration, you can't go off on the community and the fans. So you've got to really be able to understand how to handle winning, understand how to rebound from losing and uh, have good perspective and hire a great staff. That's so important. That's so insightful that you mentioned many times an assistant coach has to deal with or should have dealt with winning and losing to be able to prepare for their opportunity as a head coach. Uh, I had never heard it put in those terms, and I I found that really interesting. The one other coach that I wanted to to get your take on, and he's big-time respected, 
Um, you were with him at St. Louis, and that was Coach Majerus. I had Jim Hayford at Seattle U yeah. uh, on the ISO a week or two back. And he mentioned Coach Majerus as one of his mentors, just being willing to talk the game and, and share experiences and take the salt and pepper shakers at, at, at dinner and kind of talk about different things. He recruited me very little in high school, but I had a conversation or two with him. But I always really looked at him when I watched him coach as being someone who really enjoyed the game and loved the game. What was your experience like with Coach Majerus? He lived the game. The game was his life. And I heard that before I worked with him. And I experienced that when I was with him. When I was the head coach at Wright State, I had a coach on my staff by the name of Brian Donaher. Brian's dad was Don Donaher, a legendary coach at Dayton back in the 80s. So Rick was out of coaching at the time, and he came into Dayton to visit Coach Donaher. So Brian, Don Donaher's son, who's on my staff, said, hey, Coach Majerus is in town. He'd like to come by and watch practice. I'm like, great, wonderful, love to have him. And by the way, can you find him a pool so he can go swimming too? Okay, we'll find him a pool because he swims all the time. And um, so he came to practice, sat through the practice. I was a little nervous, to be honest with you, because I knew who he was and what he's done in the game, and I knew his reputation. He sat there with a yellow legal pad, and he took notes and he watched, and he took notes and he watched. He was locked in on our practice. And I asked him to talk to our team after in the locker room, which he did. And he was great. He was himself. He was brutally honest. He said what he liked, what he didn't like, and, you know, gave some inspiring words at the end. And then, of course, him and I and the Donahers, what do you do if you're with Rick Majerus? You go out to eat. <laughs> and, and so that was our first meeting together. And, uh, you know, then we stayed in touch all the time. And uh, when I was at ESPN and I was out of coaching for a year, uh, he got the St. Louis job, and he hired me, and then I had that chance to work with him. I can tell you this. He's as close to brilliant as I've ever seen in the game. And you mentioned I was at Boston College. I mean, I was in that conference with John Thompson, Jim Calhoun. The guy I worked for, Jim O'Brien, was an excellent basketball coach. P.J. Carlissimo, Louis Carnesecca, Roly Massimino, uh, Steve, um, Steve Lapis, Rick Barnes. I can go on and on. And then I go to the Big Ten with Coach Knight, Coach Katie, Tom Izzo, you know, Bo Ryan. It, it doesn't stop. And those guys were all elite. And then Rick Majerus is an elite coach, but I found him to be an elite teacher of the game. And I think that's what separated him from a lot of his peers, the ability to break down the game to its finest nuances and teach it. There's, there's nothing like a coach that can break down the game and teach it. I do some clinic work here in the Spokane area, and I'm a big believer in, in you've got to have great footwork. You've got to be able to handle it, pass it, catch it, and shoot it. Because it doesn't matter what offense you run if you can't do those things. Um, coach, I appreciate you breaking down the nuances and the intricacies of the evaluation and the recruiting game in, in the state of high school and college basketball it is as it is now i really appreciate you joining this has been the iso with sb live sports and today's guest was paul biancardi thank you dan let's do it again
The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.